You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, talking about the difference between religious theater and heartfelt devotion. So the context here, again, is Jesus is, this is uh, one of the, the largest bodies of contained teaching on Jesus' part that we have. This is a full-length sermon that was written down. It covers several chapters of the book of Matthew, and it is content-rich. We were, we've been in chapter 5 for three weeks, and we covered like 30 verses last week, and we still took three teachings to get through chapter 5, and we are still not doing it justice in terms of the depth that we could go. Um, so he's talking to them, he's instructing them, and the general sort of overarching theme of the whole sermon is how to live a fulfilled life. What, did it, what does it mean to live a life that, of purpose, of meaning, of joy? Uh, he got into, in detail, in our study last week, this idea of Jesus and the law, and we talked about that because this has a lot to do with our perception of religion. And Jesus is talking to them and explaining to them that religion, the Jewish religion, and which is the context in which Jesus came, he was a Jewish man, and he was teaching to a Jewish audience, has a lot of religious rituals, a lot of uh, ceremony, a lot of calendar dates and things, and that those things are there, those rules, those laws, were there to teach them things about the character and nature of God. But one of the things that for some reason man does is he takes those teaching tools and sort of forgets what they teach and makes the focus on following the rules. And this is not something that God appreciates or enjoys. And so the leading proponents of religion in Jesus' day were called the Pharisees, and he spends a lot of time knocking down the teachings of the Pharisees, but upholding the teachings of the Bible. And so he continues that process, uh, that theme, in chapter 6, which we're going to study tonight, and it's kind of about the difference between blind following of religious rules and what's going on in your heart. He starts in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. One of the things that particularly bothered Jesus, which means it bothers God, is when we fake sort of religious observance, when we hold out a picture of for others of what we're like, an, uh, an exaggerated picture of our devotion to God, our moral cleanliness. When we fake it and pretend, we mislead others into understanding what it's like to be a follower of God. And in some cases, we even mislead others into understanding what God is like. If you've ever been in an environment where you've seen people acting in very religious ways, and you've looked at them and you've thought, I could never be like that. I could never have my life together as much as they do. 
I could never behave as well as they do. I could never be as moral as they are. It's very likely that what you're seeing is a show. Because we are all sinners. We are all broken. We have problems. We are selfish. We do stupid things. And we hurt other people. Every single one of us does that. Now, God could get a hold of us, and he could begin to grow us and shape us and mold us into people that are more accurate representations of his love, of his character, of his nature. We can become more patient, more kind. But none of us will ever arrive. None of us ever gets there this side of the grave because we have what's called a flesh nature. And so what Jesus is talking about here, when he's talking about beware of putting your righteousness on display for men, he's talking about what are your, what are your motives for following God and what are your motives for the religious practices that you do? And this is very much related to what we were talking about last week with the law and the principle behind the law. You know, there were lots of things. We talked about, you know, that God said that to keep the Sabbath holy and to take the Sabbath as a day of rest, and then men took it and reinterpreted what, what rest meant. And there were all these strict rules and all these strict ordinances about following and, and what working was, and can you pick up your mat and carry it? Can you spit into the ground? And does that create a furrow? Like all of those things. And if you think about it, if you're looking on, on that and you're saying, this is what God wants, then the way that you're going to start to see God is he's this very grumpy, very strict, very concerned with the most minute, minute details of what I do. And the reality is that is religious theater. God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ to tell us, please stop. This isn't a fake it until you make it kind of situation. This is about being real. This is about being genuine. This is about your motives. This is about what's in your heart. It's not just about what you do. It's about what you think. It's about what you feel. It's about how you really see other people. It's about how you understand the world. And so Jesus continues this theme, and he gets into what some people have dubbed like the spiritual disciplines, that there are things that we can do that are beneficial, that are helpful, that can be fruitful to grow spiritually. One of the ones that he talks about is giving money. Another one he talks about is prayer. But these are also great candidates for faking it. And so he gets into the dynamics of this because his, he wants his audience to understand how important it is that what God wants is genuine devotion, not outward compliance. He talks about fasting, too. I don't think we'll have time to get to that one because this is so thick and rich. But you can just read, continue reading in the book, and uh, it's just another example of the kind of outward religious observance that's not bad in and of itself, but that God wants us to do for a reason that's connected to our hearts and our understanding of him. So he says in verse 2, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues 
and in the streets, so they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And what he's talking about here is a practice that, that actually happened. And it's a great illustration. I'm sure that some religious leader with a good intention, a good heart, thought, how can we motivate people to be more generous, right? And they're like, I know, every time they give, we'll blow a horn and call attention to the fact that this is a very genuine person, a very generous person, and we'll say, look at how generous this person is. Isn't this an example we should all follow? You can see the process of how this probably started as a relatively benign idea of just like, hey, let's call attention to the fact that people are doing good. But you can see how quickly that would go in the hearts of men to, I want the trumpet to blow for me. And now I'm not giving because I care about the poor. I'm not giving because my heart is right with God. I'm not giving because I've been given so much I want to do something for others. I'm giving because when that horn blows, I look cool. And Jesus is saying, this is gross. This is a bending and twisting of something that God wants us to do for a joyful reason. And it's taking a carnal, fleshly, selfish motive for doing the right thing. And that's not what we're supposed to be about. Giving is something we're supposed to do for several different reasons. One is we're supposed to understand God's heart for the poor. That God created all of us in the image of God, and regardless of our socioeconomic class, our level of education, how sophisticated we are, how civilized we are, regardless of all those things, everybody is created in the image of God and has the same value. And that there are people who suffer more than others because of the circumstances of their birth, because of their geography, because of their culture. They go without food, clothing, shelter. There are people that are starving. And that we should care about that because we care about God. And he says that we are his children, which makes the entire human race a family. Proverbs 19.17 says, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deeds. God says, I consider it when you give to the needs of a poor person, I consider that to be a loan to me. And I always pay back my debts with interest. Now that's not a promise that if you give a poor person 10 bucks, you're going to get back 15. That's just a promise that if you engage and are generous with people in need, that's an investment that God has his stamp of approval on. That's something in this life or the next that won't be unnoticed by the all-powerful creator God of the universe. God associates so closely to the poor Jesus says later in Matthew 25, 40, he says, truly I say to you, the extent that you did it to even one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it for me. He's described a situation where a, a person gives to the poor, and he's saying when you give to a poor person, 
It is just the same as you are giving to me. When you give them shelter, you are giving me shelter. When you give them water, you are giving me water. When you give them food, you are giving me food. These are people that I care deeply about, and their suffering is something that I want you to help alleviate. And if you have a good life and you have the ability to be generous with others, that is an act of devotion. It's an act of love toward God. That's something that's pretty interesting to think about, really. You know, a lot of us feel really grateful that God has come into our lives. We can look back over the course of our lives, and we can see a real difference. We know what we were like, how we were lost, how we were confused, how we didn't know what our purpose was. We didn't even necessarily really understand concepts like love. But then God came into our life, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. And while our lives are generally still pretty messy, something fundamental has changed that has created a a different view, a different grid through which we view the world. And it's given us a hope. A hope and the promise that there is good. And that the things that we do can matter and they can change eternity. And we are promised a future in heaven with God where there will be no evil, no pain, no suffering. And that changes us. And we wonder, like, what do you get the God that has everything? Like, how do I I show? I can tell God that I love him. That's cool. How do I show? How do I demonstrate? What's something I can do? If you're a doer. What's something you can do? And, and God says one of the things you can do, one of, the, one of the best things you can do is help poor people. God loves that. So you can see, I mean, Jesus as God is sitting here watching these religious types throw some coins in a bucket and burp, 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 and he's just like, oh. You're missing out. I'm sure he's glad for the coins that are going to help the poor. But he's equally concerned for the hearts of the givers. He's saying you're doing something that is outwardly good, but there is of no benefit to you in your heart because there's something joyful about this that you're missing. The Bible's really clear that there is a spiritual discipline of being generous of giving of your money, of your time, of your energy, all of those resources to people in need. And there's lots of different ways to do that. I love it, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. It says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants you to be excited about sharing what you have with other people. Not for the purpose of the credit or the reward that you get in the eyes of men, but because you are literally overflowing with joy for what God has done in your life and you want to share that with others. I remember the first time I read that verse. It didn't match up with what I had seen. You know, I had seen 
the televangelists and all the negative pictures about how churches seem to prey on the poor and rich pastors driving around and, and Bentleys with parishioners and people who were their sheep that were under their care, struggling to make ends meet, promises about putting your hands on the television set and getting healed in exchange for sending in money. And it just was a very, not even elaborate, very simple scam. And it seemed like what the motive that Christian leaders wanted to use was false hope, shame, and fear. But here it is right here. You should give what you want to give, what you think is good, joyfully. It's up to you. That's freedom. That's the God of the Bible. That's how different he is from the picture that so many of us have seen from mainstream Christianity. It's remarkable how different the picture is. It's as remarkable as Jesus' picture is from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are alive and well. And they're doing the same thing. They're blowing their trumpets. And they're trying to motivate people for the wrong reasons, sometimes to do the right thing. But it distorts the picture of who God is. In 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 8, Paul writes, For I testify according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. He's talking about taking up a collection from Macedonia. And he's saying these guys were so eager to share, to help. What's happening is, is there was a drought and Christians in Israel were suffering and they were like, oh, we got to get in on this. We want to help them survive. We want to bring them food and water and shelter and clothes. And they were envisioning this idea of in eternity I could take this money, which means very little and what I can do with it in this life, and I can give it to God for his purposes so that my reward will be in heaven. He says they were begging us to be allowed to participate. And he says to them in Corinth, he says, but just as you abound in everything, as you abound in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love we inspired in you, see to it that you abound in this gracious work, meaning giving as well. This is an incredible opportunity to be more in, in more than one place at a time. I remember the first time I realized that, I realized I can give money to missionaries in another country and my efforts, my work become multiplied. I can work, you know, I remember being a college student and a, and a young Christian. I was working at Champs Americana down at the Linux. And I was like, I can take money and give it to God's work in other places. And then it's like when I'm hosting or serving tables or cleaning up or whatever it is I'm doing, it's like I'm in another country doing God's work. And what a powerful revelation that is. Like if you're somebody who wants to do something, I'm not saying only give. 
But I'm saying don't miss out on the opportunity to be engaged and meeting the needs of others in a way that God says is very meaningful. And it says there's wrong reasons to do it. This isn't something where it's like the reasons don't matter. Jesus' point here is kind of the reasons very much do matter. If you do it from the wrong reasons, the reward is the trumpet and the way people view you, and that's all the reward there will be. Don't do it to be viewed as spiritual by others. Don't do it to bring glory to yourself. Don't do it because of pressure or guilt. Don't do it to elevate your status. And don't do it because you're looking for acceptance. You cannot buy your way into heaven. We give because we have been given so much. And I don't just mean finances. We give what we have been given is eternal life. And we can take worldly wealth and use that so that others can have that same eternal life brought to them. It's one, of, it's one of the most important, most incredible investments we can make. Jesus says, well, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't broadcast your business on the streets. Keep this on the down low. Be generous and be humble so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees you, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Nothing escapes the scrutiny of God. And that tends to scare us a little bit because we think about all the bad things that we hope he hasn't seen, that no one's seen. But the flip side of that is really invigorating. It's really positive, it's really exciting. He doesn't miss one good thing that you do. He sees it all. And a part of your life, a part of your relationship with him is literally doing that thing as a connection. This is your and God's secret. That's how, that's how Jesus frames this here. Let this be, let some of your good be a secret between you and God. And that will enrich in your relationship with God. How do you check your motives here? Well, there's some good questions you should ask. Do you feel like giving entitles you to influence? I know we're all like, no, 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 no. I, 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 don't, I don't feel like you know, my giving entitles me to influence. But yet, uh, in my role, I see this quite often. People who will say, well, you know, I'm a pretty big giver here, and I would like to see this happen. You know, and you're like, well, you know, we really appreciate your generosity, but no. That doesn't mean you get to lead the church. It doesn't mean you get to decide. Now, we have cool things like the fiscal support team and ways that people get to be involved in the decision-making process, but what you will never see, as long as I'm here and our founders, is like the so-and-so blank-blank building the gym, the Todd Van Kirk gym for little tykes. <laughs> we will not do that. How is that any different than blowing the trumpet? 
I don't mean to besmirch the generosity. If you've got a building with your name on it somewhere, you know, cool. But that is not something we feel the freedom to do here, is to, to hold forth people as visceral examples, and it's because of this principle. If you want to give, give joyfully, give generously, give from your heart, and do it without the expectation that you will be noticed or claimed by men. But you can do it with the expectation that God will see, and he will do something wonderful to reward you for that kind of generosity. Do you want others to know how much you give? You're like, no, no, that's private. I don't like to talk about those things. But you do want them to know that you give a lot, right? We don't need to talk numbers. Let me just say, it's big. <laughs> this could get complicated because you want to be an example. And if you're teaching someone, if you're mentoring someone, you want to teach them how and the importance of. And I'm not even saying in those contexts you know, that it, you should never tell anyone how much you give or you should never use that as an example. My point is, is that if you're burning for people to know and your motive is not to teach someone else, but it's to be like, this is how much of a badass I am, there's something in your heart that God wants you to look at. And it's not because you're a bad person and it's not because you're doing a terrible job. God wants you to look at it because he has more for you. And your understanding of what it is that God can do through your generosity is limited. And he wants to grow that. You feel like you should be treated differently because you give. We get that a lot. And it's just, it's just something where it's just, this isn't a reason to give so that the pastor will answer your phone call more quickly, more often, so that you'll have input on things, or so that you'll get treated, or, you know, there's no buying a seat that's yours. There's no buildings with your name on it. There's no more opportunity that comes. No more uh, roles that open up. It's about your relationship with God. For some people, their giving is conditional on God doing what they want. They give and they're generous and then something bad happens in their life. I'll give to you, God, as long as you keep my kids safe. I'll give to you, God, as long as I keep this job that I want. I'll give to you, God, as long as my marriage is the way that I want it to be. I'll give to you, God, as long as I don't get cancer. And it doesn't work that way. God is not obligated to protect us from the things that we want protection from. But he does promise he'll bless us and the things that he knows we need to be blessed in. And that our reward for our generosity will be great if we do what we do because of who he is from the heart. Here's the real question. Are you giving because you're grateful? Are you giving because, as Jesus says, your cup runs over? 
God and your relationship with God has impacted your life in such a way that you are eager to see that opportunity for others. That you love God, you love what he has done in your life, and it causes you to want to live for eternal things and to be generous with material things. Now all that said, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be a good steward. When I'm like, we won't put buildings with your name on it and all those things, that doesn't mean you shouldn't ask questions. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be concerned. How is this money being used? What percentage of the money I give is being used to the thing that I care about in the organization? It doesn't mean that you shouldn't demand fiscal transparency. If I'm going to give to an organization, I want them to tell me in detail how that money is being used. I'm not saying just give and shut up. I'm saying give, but don't do it in such a way as to get your glory from men, but give responsibly to organizations that will use your resources for God's purposes and give in multiple ways. Don't just give here. Find different ways. You know, diversify your eternal portfolio. Invest yourself all over the world in missions organizations, in organizations that help the poor, in organizations that meet people's physical and spiritual needs. And yes, give to your church. Then he talks about prayer. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. It's just like the trumpets. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Prayer is such an interesting thing. When you boil down what prayer is, when you really understand, it's an incredible privilege. It's a red phone to God that he will pick up whenever you answer. Whenever you dial You have direct access to the Alpha and the Omega, the creator God of the universe. He's interested in your thoughts. He wants to talk to you. He cares about what's going on in your life. He wants you to share your life with him, and he wants to share his life with you. That's what prayer is. It's not for God's benefit. You know, sometimes I think we think about God as like Tinkerbell in the show where you have to clap and then Tinkerbell, you know, if you clap loud enough, Tinkerbell comes back to life. Like God feeds on our prayers and he somehow needs them. God needs nothing from us. But he wants a relationship. And how do you have a relationship with someone that you don't talk to? It's kind of required. In the definition of what a relationship is, there has to be communication. There has to be connection. There has to be sharing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Make your life about prayer. Don't just have a little time where you pray on a certain day of the week, at a certain moment, at a certain time. Don't just pray when you go to bed. Don't just pray before you eat your meals. I know none of you do that anyway. 
but make God a part of your whole life. When you're driving to work, turn off the radio, pick up the red phone, talk to God. When you're in the shower, when you're going about your day, when you're doing the dishes, when you're mowing the lawn, you can be engaged in a lifestyle of prayer. God is always there. There's an opportunity to both feed spiritually, to have your spirits lifted, and to also continue the work of God by asking him to move in different ways in different people's lives. One of the things that, that it amazes me is how often I'm told and people email me or they call me or they text message me to let me know that they are praying for me. There's two things in, in the role that I have that I would say happen the most frequently. People say, I don't envy you and I don't want your job and I'm praying for you. And those things, I think, are very much connected. People say, I don't know how you could do a job like this in a time like this, in a place like this? And the answer is because there are tons, there are hundreds of people that are praying. There is a strength, there is a comfort, there is a real sense that there, is, there are people behind what it is that we're doing in a way mobilizing the spiritual forces of God to support the work that we are doing. There's all kinds of ways that you can engage in ministry all over the world while you brush your teeth. It's amazing to think about. There are great benefits to communal prayer. That's why we pray together here Every week, if you're in a home group, hopefully you guys pray together at some point. To hear other people pray is a powerful way to understand what a relationship with God looks like. To hear other, how other people talk to God, to hear the things that they pray for, and sometimes God works through prayer in other people. So to participate that, to be engaged in that, and to be a part of that is really sweet. It's really cool. It can bring us together as a community, as a family, when we pray out loud with one another, for one another, it connects us, it binds us. God says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am with you. But also having your own private time with God. That's what Jesus actually wants to talk about here. He says, but you, those hypocrites, those Pharisees, they stand on the street corners and at the synagogues, they say, oh God, please, Lord. He says, but you, go into your little inner room, close the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I remember when I was in seminary, I was studying devotional life because I wanted to pick something for my final project, my thesis, that was, I was terrible at. And it was like relating to God. That's what I'm terrible at. Praying, you know, just devoting, 
It was always just sort of mysterious to me what that is. I understand doing things for God and doing things for people. But just being close, ugh. <laughs> So I did my, my thesis, my seminary thesis on different styles of devotion. And I was here and I was walking on the path. One of my favorite things to do is walk this path and, and spend time with God. And there was something I was particularly frustrated about. And I, I called out to God. I said, God! You know, hear me. And it was like, it was one of those moments, like just, I've been walking with God for 25 years. And I don't hear God's voice. I get sometimes some very strong leadings. But even those are not normal. And it was like God was like, shh, I'm not up there. I'm in here. I'm so close to you. You could whisper the quietest whisper, and I would hear you loud. You, you don't need to put your energy into how strong your prayer is. You can be still, and you can be quiet, because I am as close to you as closeness gets. The Bible says that God puts his spirit to dwell inside of us. There's no need to make a show of it. There's no need to call out It's not as though God can't hear you. He wants to be as intimate and as connected as two beings can be. And you can do that in the quietness of a small room, of the inner room of your house with the door closed, and no one in your house has to know what's going on. And God sees that too. The wrong motives Similar in every way, trying to make yourself look more spiritual. Strange wording and and intonations. God. You ever notice that when people pray and they have their prayer voice? You know, all of a sudden everything changes. What is that about? Is it like God won't recognize your voice if it's your normal voice? I mean, there's a place for being respectful to God. There's definitely a place for that being reverent, you know. But it seems to me that a lot of Christians have this sort of outward polish that they want to put. And I don't think it's for God's benefit. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. That prayer is conversational. Praying by rote, some kind of repeated, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, That's good for teaching children. I'm not against teaching that to children. But, like, that's good for two-year-olds who are still learning mama, dada, you know, those kinds of things. Those kinds of prayers are good because, like, the way you teach your kid to say mama is you say mama to them a lot. And they make a bunch of different noises. And when they get close to mama, you're like, ah, that's what I was looking for. And they're like, mama? And you're like, ah, That's what rote prayers are like. They have value. We can learn from them. But we don't want to treat God like a genie in a bottle. Where if we say things a lot at the same time, or if we pray something enough times, or if we rub the lamp just right, God will pop out and give us what we want. But that's how we're kind of predisposed to think about him. Look at what Jesus says. And when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles, that's all the non-Jewish people do, 
for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You don't need long, elaborate prayers with words that no one uses except when they pray. You don't need to repeat yourself over and over and over again. Prayer is a conversation. It's not magical. It can accomplish something. Prayer could change the world. But not because of the words that you use, the tone that you use, or how many times you say it. It could change the world because God is that powerful and that big. And that red phone goes right to him. Jesus then, after very explicitly saying, don't pray repeated prayers over and over and over again like the non-believers do, gave them a template for prayer. Not a prayer, clearly, not a prayer to be repeated, and yet, it's the most repeated prayer in the history of prayer. He says, when you pray then, pray in this way. Not pray this. You know, what part of the job of being a rabbi was teaching your disciples how to pray. And if you happen to be a learner, a student of Jesus, the Son of God, I would very much like to have Jesus teach me how to pray. He probably knows how to do it better than anyone else. And so he gave them a, a lesson on how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know how I, ha I learned this prayer? In sixth grade football. That's how I learned this prayer. Because I never went to church. Give us this day our daily bread and give us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Short, but loaded with cool stuff. Not a prayer to be memorized and repeated, and this is how we talk to God. I mean, literally, God must be like, oh, it's another, another our Father who's in heaven. <laughs> Imagine in a relationship, you pick up the red phone and you just say the same thing every time. How infuriating that would be. It's not for the purpose of repeating. It's for the purpose of teaching. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven addressing God in a warm and familiar way. This would have been crazy to his hearers. You know why? He recognizes who he's dealing with. He says, when you pray, use the word Abba, which means daddy. Pray to daddy. It's the, it's the very familiar term for father in Greek. Abba, daddy. And he says, when you pray, pray to daddy. He's talking, he's emphasizing what theologians call the eminence of God, the closeness of God. God is your daddy. He is the ideal father and views you like a child. And when you approach your daddy, who you love, and who's sweet and kind and careful and safe, remember that when you pray. Then he says, hallowed be your name. 
Hagazio, which means holy. This is what theologians call the transcendence of God. God is close. He loves you. You're a part of his family, but he's also a badass. He is a serious dude. He is the all-powerful creator God. He is to be respected, and he is unique. He is holy. He is set apart, and there is no one like him. You are dealing with the ultimate power in the universe, and nothing else comes close. So he says, so when you pray, say, Daddy, you're amazing. You are one of a kind. Daddy, you're one of a kind. Is how the prayer starts. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you can take parts of this prayer and you can recognize there are different types of prayer. This type is called praise. We could call the first part the introduction. This is praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Longing for God's will on earth. Remember the Makarios. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. God, I can't wait. Daddy, I can't wait until the earth looks like heaven. Until things are set right here. Until things are the way that they're supposed to be. I agree, Daddy. That your ways are better than our ways. That it's a mess down here. I'm on the red phone and I'm saying, I can't wait for you to come home and set this right and change the horrors that we see. We want you to come and make this right because you are amazing and good. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. That's another type of prayer. So it's a request. It's okay. It's good to ask dad for things that you need. A plea for food, clothing, shelter, for physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. God, I'm down, I'm struggling, I need you, God, to come into my life. I need you to help me persevere through this. Give me wisdom, God. Give me strength. Give me patience. Give me courage. These are good things, Jesus says, to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, request, I need your guidance, God. I need your security, I need your spirit. I need your protection. I need your wisdom. Please, God, it's a mess down here. Help me, guide me through my life so that I can bring you glory and I could be fulfilled and have a life of purpose. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Right back to praise. Because you are amazing. You have the answers. You are what is good. You are the king. And you are glorious. Amen just means truly. It's like a little booyah at the end. It's like, uh uh-huh. Recognizing, reminding ourselves 
And when you pray this way and you understand the components of this, and what Jesus wants you to understand is the components of this. There's all these different ways that are appropriate to connect with God and to declare the truth of God because it uplifts your heart. There's something about declaring truth. God, you are awesome. That makes you feel good and right. There are other types of prayer that are not templated in the Lord's Prayer. I think it would have been hard for, dem- for Jesus to demonstrate confession. That would be a type of prayer that he really wasn't capable of, isn't it? He was sinless. We are not, and neither was David. He knew how to confess. Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You ever feel that way? So convicted, so ashamed, so embarrassed, so weighed down that you felt like you had a fever in your spirit? just so crushed by the weight of the reality of the evil that you have done. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, God, I can't take this. I am a sinner and I am so far from you and I'm so far from where I want to be and I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. The way to get that weight off, the way to, get to, to break that fever is confession. Acknowledge, I have problems. I need help. I cannot do this. It's a great prayer. And thanksgiving. David again, Psalm 18, 1 through 6. I love you, Lord, O my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. That's called praise. I call upon you, call upon you, Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. If you're going to pray and ask God for stuff, which is totally good and right, when you make those requests, remember then to thank him when those prayers are answered. I think a lot of us run around thinking our prayers never get answered because we never recognize that it was God that did it. We pray something and forget about it, and then three weeks later he answers the prayer and we're like, that was lucky. What good fortune for me. Praise or adoration, confession, thanksgiving, requests or supplication. And what Jesus is talking about here, remember, is motive. Prayer is a call home. That's what it is. Remember when you were in college? Hopefully you had a parent or someone you loved that was helping you and that was good. You would call up and you would be like, Mom, I miss you. 
This is hard. I've got a lot going on in my life. It's the pressure is immense. I'm poor. I'm eating ramen noodles. If you could send a little more cash my way, that would be good. That's what the Lord's Prayer is. It's a call home. Our Father in heaven, Daddy, you're awesome. Can you send some help? I wish that my life here was like my life when I was back with you, and I know that that's going to happen someday, but it hurts right now. I'm suffering. I need your guidance. I need your protection. And I don't just need it, but everyone needs it. And I want to see our mission accomplished. But I know that that's going to happen in your timing, and I know that you are good. Amen. We pray because we want to connect with God. We pray because we need help. We pray because we need comfort. We pray and we are refreshed. And we pray because we want to include God in our lives. Is it religious theater or is it heartfelt devotion? Jesus says, just be real. Just be genuine. No, you won't always feel right. It won't always feel good. I'm not talking about always have the right feelings. I'm talking about let there be a tension in your heart regarding what your motives are. If you're even asking that question, what are my motives, you are on the right path. It's when you go about your business doing the theater and doing the show and you never ask, is this genuine? Am I really into this or is this just for show? If you are never asking yourself that question, then it is clear that you have a problem. Your motives will never be pure. But you can become sensitive to the leading and hopeful and engaged that you will learn how to do these things for the right reasons. He started this whole thing, beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. It is not just about the outward actions. It's about the heart. I'll close with this. One more psalm from David. If you're wondering how do you get back on the path, if you're feeling like maybe you've been a hypocrite, the path back is simple. But notice I didn't say easy. It's as simple as this. Confess to God that your heart has been in the wrong place and ask him to help you get back on track. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle, to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord's loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Why don't we just pray together, and then we'll enjoy some fellowship outside. Thank you, God, that we can pray. Thank you that what you want is a conversation. Thank you that you don't want weird repetition and showboating and theater, but you want real relationship. What an amazing revelation that is when we understand that for the first time, that you don't want the robes and the candles 
and the ceremony. That's not what's in your heart. What's in your heart is community, is love, is compassion. Pray that we can be that to each other and to those in our lives who don't know you. And pray that we can be a part of demonstrating to the world the reality of your character and your nature and who you are because they need you, God. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.